1: of following Christ, counting the cost of following our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Almost 200 years ago, 199 years, and pretty soon it will be the bicentennial, April 30th, 1803, representatives of the United States of America met with Napoleon Bonaparte and bought a chunk of land from him, the Louisiana Purchase. 828,000 square miles for 27 million dollars, which is less than a signing bonus of some NBA athletes these days. It worked out to just less than three cents an acre. An incredible, an incredible bargain when you stop and think about it. I mean, think of all the states that were made up of the Louisiana Purchase. Louisiana, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, North and South Dakota, Nebraska and Oklahoma, find their borders completely within that chunk of land. Parts of Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, and Minnesota as well. Now, at the time that the purchase was made, the $27 million represented a huge chunk of the Federal Reserve. (laughs) But it was worth it. And I think in the same way of following Christ, Jesus comes to us and offers us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He offers us full pardon of all of our sins, past, present, and future through his blood. He offers us fellowship with believers from all ages into all eternity. He offers us his own righteousness to cover us on judgment day. He offers us eternal life. Does he ask nothing of us? No, he does not ask nothing of us. For just as he offers everything to us, he also asks everything from us. And I think we're losing sight of that more and more as we go on in American evangelicalism. We've slipped into something called cheap grace. Think about what Jesus said when he talked about the merchant to find pearls, looking everywhere, high and low, in all nations for excellent pearls. He finds one of great value. He understands the value of that pearl, so much so that he goes and sells everything that he has so that he can buy that pearl. Or think about the man in Palestine who finds a treasure of great value hidden in a field. And then in his joy, not grudgingly, but in his joy, he sells all of his possessions that he might buy that field. I think we've lost the fact that in both of those stories, there's a selling first before there's an obtaining. Am I thinking that we can buy salvation? You know I don't believe that. It's far too expensive. Only the blood of Jesus Christ could buy, could purchase our freedom from the wrath of God. But yet there is a cost to following Jesus. And it is not cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a brother in Christ who lived in Nazi Germany during World War II. Wrote a book translated uh, into the words The Cost of Discipleship. And this is what he wrote about this phenomenon called cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, the man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows Christ. Such grace is costly, said Bonhoeffer, because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life there is. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, the scripture says. And what cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but rather gave him up for us all. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer on cheap grace versus costly grace. Now, Bonhoeffer, in the summer of 1939, was here in America at Union Seminary, he was with American friends. He saw that war was imminent, and his friends begged him to stay in the States and continue his work here. But he said, no. He said, soon there's going to be war, and looking ahead, he said, my country will need to be rebuilt. He assumed that Germany would lose the war. And he said, I cannot be with them in the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the church in Germany and not suffer through the war with them. I must go back. A couple months after he uh, returned home, World War II began. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was martyred in May of 1945 as one of the last acts of Adolf Hitler before Hitler took his life. Bonhoeffer knew that, and he put it this way, when Jesus Christ bids us to follow, he bids us come and die. Be willing to lay down your life, and that is true. And it is to that kind of costly following of Christ that today's scripture calls us. We need this message, don't we? Today's American gospel has very little concentration on the preaching of the law or the wrath of God. Christ proposed is proposed as someone who will make your life better, a life enhancer. It goes better with Christ, you know, that kind of thing. The key verse for this way of looking at Christianity is, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so then we take abundant life and we run it through the mill of our carnal imaginations and think, what kind of abundant life did Jesus come to give? Well, it's a life of material possessions, a life of freedom from inner turmoil and external troubles. It's a life in which there are resources to solve all your problems. You'll have friends, you'll have popularity... You'll have all kinds of good things coming if you'll only follow Christ. Conviction of sin is minimal. Constant assurance of salvation is given. And I think now more than ever, we need to hear again the words of the text that we're looking at today. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. More than ever, we need to count the cost of following Christ. This passage, I believe, banishes cheap grace... ...and delves into true motivations for following Christ. There's a movement today called Seeker Sensitivity. It's part of the overall church growth movement. Seeker Sensitivity. Well, I think it's good for us to look at this passage... ...and try to understand Seeker Sensitivity according to Jesus. How would Jesus be sensitive to seekers? What would he do with somebody coming to him who's interested in following him? The modern church growth movement espouses a view called Seeker Sensitivity. They want you to be sensitive to seekers... Modern church growth is constantly looking at ways to enlarge your church, studying the science of what makes a church grow, specifically numerically. And what this kind of approach to church growth, and by the way, I love church growth, is if this church isn't growing anymore, it's what? Well, it's dead. So we must grow. We must grow numerically through evangelism. We must grow spiritually through discipleship. But there's a different approach that cannot discern the difference between a church and a crowd seeking to have lots and lots of people, and there's ways to do it. What you want to do is you want to appeal to unregenerate sensibilities. In that approach, the physical arrangement of the church is paramount. You need a new church building. I'm not advocating this now. I want you to understand we're talking about something I'm not advocating. We need a new church building, state-of-the-art physical arrangements, physical comfort is the constant goal, pleasure, earthly pleasure, the organizing theme. There's going to be visual pleasure with that attractive sanctuary. The more striking, the better. There's going to be auditory pleasure, music that attracts and appeals to the ear. There's nothing wrong with that, but this is the focus. Relational pleasure. There's pleasure. There's going to be friendly, happy people welcoming you and ushering you to your place. No problems inside here. No difficulties. Only pleasure. There's going to be heart pleasure, messages that are relevant and that minister to your heart. You walk away feeling good every time. Well, that's the approach. That's the formula for church growth. We're going to be sensitive to seekers. Now, what does it mean in this approach to be sensitive to seekers? Well, first of all, let's take the second one. What is a seeker? Well, it's somebody who shows interest in spiritual things, right? Somebody who might come to Christ and say, I'll follow you wherever you go. Somebody like that. Somebody interested in spiritual things. That's a seeker. But the scripture testifies concerning this category of people that no one naturally seeks God. Think of what it says again in Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. As it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, listen to the next part, no one who seeks God. No one naturally seeks God. The Bible says all have turned away. So if someone is genuinely seeking Christ, guess what? According to John 6, it is the Father who is drawing them. No one can come to me, said Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, a true seeker is somebody that the Father is drawing into full commitment to Christ, right? Somebody who is interested in following Christ the way he really desires to be followed. Well, that's what a seeker is. What does it mean to be sensitive to the seeker? How can we be sensitive? Well, the church growth approach, seeker sensitivity, says, we must filter out anything that would cause them to turn away from Christ. You see what I'm saying? We're going to filter out any difficulties. We're going to filter out anything offensive or troubling. Especially filter out any mention of sin or conviction or wrath or judgment or hell. These things are not popular. And so we're going to try to filter them out. We'll get to them by and by. We are, after all, an evangelical church. We'll get to them by and by. But at the first blush, we're not going to talk much about them. We want them to be comfortable. We want them to come in. We want to meet them where they're at, is the expression. And so we're going to be sensitive to them. We're also going to filter out any offensive aspects of the gospel message. The cross, the blood, the thorns, the stripes of Christ. And also the narrow gates and the commitment that it's going to be to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to filter those things out. We'll get to those on the Wednesday night discipleship meetings. Those are for the advanced seekers, you see. Is this Jesus' approach to a seeker? Not at all. What is seeker sensitivity according to Christ? Well, Jesus was constantly going for the heart. He was zeroed in on the heart. What is going on in here? He understands the genuine needs of each person. Think about a parallel account, the rich young ruler, right? There's a seeker. He comes and he says, Lord, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus, after some discussion, says, one thing you lack, sell all your possessions. And give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. Well, I can see at this moment... A church growth consultant coming alongside Jesus... As the rich young ruler walks away... Because he had many possessions. And saying, Jesus, you know, you've got a great message. And people are really warming to it. You're doing well. But that, that was a mistake right there. What happened there was a mistake. Here's a guy who's rich, first of all, okay... Okay, he's young, he's got years ahead of him, he's a ruler, he's in a position of authority, and you turned him away. Now, we like what you're doing, but I might try a different approach. Jesus' brothers tried to do that in John chapter 7, where they're giving him PR advice. You know, no one seeking to be a religious leader behaves the way you do. Could it be that Jesus was not seeking to be what they wanted? Could it be that his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts? And could it be that the idolatrous, rich, young ruler really did need to sell his possessions in order to follow Christ? And so we have in our text today two seekers coming to Jesus. How does he deal with them? What approach does he take? Well, first we have a teacher of the law. Look at verse 19. Teacher of the law comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wow, what an open door, right? (laughs) What an opportunity. First of all, he's a teacher of the law. What does this mean? Well, he's used to a comfortable standard. He's at the higher, the upper echelon of Jewish society. Well respected in Jewish culture. He's a scholar. He's constantly studying the word of God. The scribes, they were called, would uh, write copies of the Bible and make it available for synagogues. They didn't have printing presses and all that back then. So this man spent his full time copying scripture. He also would teach the Scriptures. He was called a teacher of the law, and so this is what he did. He was probably wealthy among the upper echelon of society. Now, in Matthew's Gospel, teachers of the law, are they usually friends of Jesus? Not at all. This man was an anomaly. He was unusual. He was interested in Jesus. He actually is very interested in Christ. He's not turned off. He's not opposed the way most of the teachers of the law were. Teachers of the law constantly uh, challenged Christ. They were in his face throughout his whole ministry. At one point in Mark 14.1, it was the teachers of the law who met together plotting to kill Jesus. And Jesus, for his part, in Matthew 23, gives them the seven woes. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So that's the ordinary relationship between the teachers of the law and Jesus. But this man is an exception. He comes up and gives Jesus, in effect, a blanket declaration of loyalty. Look at it again. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He's, in effect, handing Jesus a blank check, so it seems. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, in verse 20, challenges him deeply. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, was Jesus driving the teacher of the law away? Not at all. He was basically preparing him for the kind of earthly life a disciple of Jesus Christ could expect. It's not what you think, he's saying to the teacher of the law. It's not a life of miracles, celebrations, power, and ever-increasing glory until we take the throne in Jerusalem. It's not going to be like that. Physical, earthly comfort is not in my future. And if you're going to follow me, it's probably not going to be in your future either. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. For the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, think about that. Jesus had just got done with the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how he says in Matthew 6 that we're not to be anxious for anything? Don't worry about what you'll you'll wear. Don't worry about what you'll eat. And why? Because look at the birds of the air. They don't labor or spin or, or do any of those things. And your Heavenly Father provides them. You're worth much more than they are. So don't worry about food. Don't worry about clothes. Don't worry about any of those things. And yet, just two chapters later, he's saying, Oh, by the way... The foxes and birds get it better than I do. That's what he's saying, isn't he? Foxes and birds get it better than the Son of Man on earth. Are you ready to follow me? Are you ready for that kind of life? It's challenging. Do you find it interesting that we get no response here? We don't find out what happens with this man? Did he follow? Did he not? Wouldn't you love to know? But you know something, it's written in here not for him, is it? Who's it for? It's for us. What about you? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't know where I'm going to be. Will you follow me anyway? And then the second seeker, the dutiful son. (laughs) Verse 21, another disciple said to him, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. This is another seeker. He's, first of all, he's called a disciple. He's, he's willing to follow Jesus. He's already following Jesus around, listening to his teachings. He calls him Lord, and in Matthew's gospel, that always is done by followers. But he sticks in a word, and there's a problem there. He said, Lord, first, first, let me go and bury my father. That word first, there's a problem with that. Do you, do you know what the problem is? It's got to do with his hierarchy of values. My first and most important value, Jesus, is not following you. My first and most important value is I've got to go take care of my father. Now, what does he mean when he says, let me go and bury my father? Well, I don't think it means that his father was on his deathbed. It was a Jewish way of saying, I have responsibilities as a son. We don't know, but perhaps he was a firstborn and he stood to inherit his father's possessions. But if he did not stick around and care for his father, he would forfeit and the nextborn son would get his inheritance. John MacArthur put it this way, since a man's inheritance was customarily lost or reduced if he did not fulfill his expected duties to the family, the phrase, I must bury my father was frequently equivalent to, I want to wait until I get my money. After I get my inheritance, then I will follow you. It was open-ended. It could be years and years away before he finally followed Jesus. Jesus, speaking about that hierarchy of priorities, he said this, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Did you hear that? Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There's a hierarchy here, isn't there? And the highest, according to Jesus, is following Christ. There is no higher call than following Christ. There's no higher call than loving Jesus and serving him with all your heart. Any other earthly commitment comes lower than that. The parallel account in Luke, another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't look back. We're moving ahead. We're not going backward into inheritances and houses and lands and all of those things. And it's interesting, the second half of what he says, follow me and let the dead... Bury their own dead? What does that mean? Let the dead bury their own? How do dead people bury other dead people? How does that happen? Well, I think it would be clear if we understood let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. You follow me. What does it mean, let the spiritually dead? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 2, before we come to faith in Christ, we are, every one of us, dead in our transgressions and sins. The Apostle Paul and Jesus agree yet again. They always agree. If you haven't come to Christ yet, you're dead in transgressions and sins. And so Jesus says, leave that earthly way of thinking for people who don't know life yet. Leave it for those who are dead, and you come follow me. Now, we know, doctrinally, that no one is saved by following Jesus. You're not saved by your good works. You're not saved by any of those things. You're saved by faith alone. But by faith alone, appearances can be deceiving. You can have somebody that's that's going to say, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm willing to do anything. But it's Jesus with the precision of a heart surgeon that goes right to the heart of the matter and says, what is really going on inside of you? Have you trusted me with all of your heart? In John chapter 2, Jesus, while he was at the Passover feast, it says many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need anyone's testimony about what was in a man, for he himself knew what was in a man. In other words, people wanted to come and entrust themselves to Jesus. He would not entrust himself to them because he saw what was going on in their hearts. Simple faith is not so simple. The faith that saves is a faith that will follow, even if Jesus has no place to lay his head that night. What we need instead is Christ's definition of an abundant life. What kind of life do you expect as a Christian? What do you think it's going to be like the rest of your years here on earth? That's what we're really getting to here, aren't we? What is your life in following Jesus going to be like? There's a common misconception that Jesus has come into our life as a life enhancer. I heard a tape recently talking about this. And there's an analogy concerning Christ as life enhancer. Suppose you're on an airplane, right? And somebody comes, uh, the, the stewardess comes and offers you uh, a parachute... And says, I want you to put this parachute on. It's going to improve your flight. It's going to make every part of your flight more pleasurable and more enjoyable. Put the parachute on and you'll find that eating the in-flight meal and watching the in-flight movie and reading the in-flight magazine will all go much better with this parachute. Go ahead and put it on. So, sounds good. I want my flight enhanced. I will put this parachute on. And so you put the parachute on. But you know those seats are pretty small anyway. All right? And the enclosure just got a little tougher. You're now leaning forward. The parachute's pushing you forward. It's an eight-hour flight, and you're going to make it with a parachute on your back. Then they bring you the meal, and, you you know, the tray is jammed into your chest, and you're having a hard time eating it anyway. And then all of a sudden you notice no one else has a parachute on. Okay, you're the only one. And they're all kind of looking at you like, what's that for? Well, she told me my flight would be enhanced. And they start to titter and laugh and make jokes about you and, Criticize you or family members think you're insane and none of them have a parachute on either and so eventually what are you going to do to that parachute? It's not really enhancing your flight very much is it you're going to pitch it you can get rid of it Suppose instead a stewardess comes and says here. I have a parachute for you If you don't put it on you're going to die because we have four engines on fire right now And one of the wings is about to break off and within probably ten minutes you're going to be hurtling through space Put the parachute on if you want to live. Will you put that parachute on? Oh, you better believe it. Well, now all of a sudden, the discomfort of leaning forward in the seat is nothing to you. The in-flight meal doesn't look very appetizing anyway. You're only thinking about one thing, and that is surviving what's about to come. I think if we preach the gospel with the law... And you understand that judgment day is coming and wrath is coming. And you have to give an account for every careless word you've spoken. And you cannot survive unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. You will by no means enter heaven. And Jesus comes and says, I will give you my righteousness. I will take all of your sins off of you. Follow me and I will lead you to heaven. But along the way, you're going to have trouble and difficulty and struggle and strife. But in the end, you'll have full rewards by grace and you will not die in the lake of fire, but you'll be with me forever. Will you take that parachute off or will you put up with whatever comes your way? We need a new definition, I think, therefore, of abundant life. It is not Jesus' life enhancer. What is abundant life according to Jesus? Well, it's, I don't have a place to stay tonight, but it doesn't matter because I'm going to be in the center of my Father's will. Everything I do will be according to His way. And when I've finished, I will have brought Him glory on earth by finishing all the work He gave me to do, and there will be eternal fruit as a result. I don't know where I'm going to stay tonight, but I know that I'm going to be in the center of my Father's will. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish my work. Knowing God is abundant life. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, that is sweet. And that is abundant. And in the middle of trials, just like Paul and Silas, you can be singing in prison. You can be praising him. And why? Because this is exactly what you knew was coming. What application can we take from this? Well, we have to count the cost of following Jesus. First of all, number one, praise Jesus that he was willing to leave his father's throne above and come down and live that kind of life for you. Think about it. Look at all he left behind. He left his father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That's what Jesus did. He was willing to leave the throne and say, I've got no place to stay tonight. I'm going to be homeless. I'm going to walk through somebody's wheat field. I'm going to pluck heads of grain, roll them in my hand. evangelism we need to be more honest folks we need to tell them the truth right from the start we need to tell them that judgment day is coming and Jesus offers them the only hope of salvation and that if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub how do you think you're going to be treated on earth what kind of life do you expect the rest of the way Jesus is not a life enhancer mostly he's a savior and he came to give you eternal life we need to get up therefore every day as Christians and count the cost to say, am I willing to follow Jesus today? Suppose it leads me into discomfort. Suppose it leads me into trouble. Will I follow him anyway? Am I willing to follow him no matter what? We need to understand luxury and necessity differently. Have you ever thought about Jesus's last will and testament? Think about it. What was on his will? To my mother I bequeath do you remember what what he what did he carry with him up the cross? Well, he had his clothes, right? No money, everything else gone. He had his clothes, and what happened to them? Well, they got gambled away to fulfill prophecy. He had nothing left. He gave it all. It was all gone. His last will and testament. I have nothing earthly to give. What about Paul? Paul's inventory of what was truly necessary. First Timothy chapter six. He said, if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. But Americans have expectations of earthly comfort, don't we? We have expectations that it must be comfortable, it must be pleasurable, there must be plenty. Or else I will not follow Jesus. Well, wealth is not evil, is it? Not at all. But there are certain ways that we are called to live. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 and 18, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. How then shall we live? Well, like the Apostle Paul, who's learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus knew how to feast, and he knew how to go through 40 days in the desert with nothing to eat. He could do all those things through the will of his Heavenly Father. So what's a good diagnostic for your expectations? Well, how about this? Have you complained at all this past week? Oh, come on, tell me. Fourth of July, 110 degrees. Did you complain? (laughs) Our air conditioning's out. Did you complain? I think complaints are a good indicator of expectations. You take faulty expectations and combine them with difficult circumstances and out comes a complaint. Right? What I'm working on here is the faulty expectation. That's what Jesus would work on. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That night, they lay down on the ground. The guys who followed said, Well, he told us. This is what was going to happen. But if you expect king's palaces and you lay on the ground that night, you're going to abandon the faith, walking away from Jesus. What kind of life do you expect? What's it going to be like from here on out for you? The Apostle Paul, Five five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and have toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. (laughs) Will you come anyway, if that's what I promise you? On the 4th of July, we went to the IMAX in Raleigh and saw the story of Shackleton, which I've mentioned before. Went down to Antarctic, and you know how he recruited people? The sign said, I'm not going to get this exactly right, but it said, dangerous journey, small pay, extreme cold, healthy return unlikely. 5,000 people showed up to be with Shackleton. 5,000, they had to turn them away. Select group from that. Jesus, in effect, does that. He says, will you follow if this is what it's going to be like? I think you will if you're one of his sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow. And I'll follow him anywhere. I will go with him. And why? Because you alone, Lord Jesus, have the words of eternal life. I have no other way to survive Judgment Day. And I will follow you. I will follow you to the end. This is what Jesus said. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and serve me. John twelve twenty six. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Follow me and be willing to suffer disgrace. Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. That means if you follow Christ, people might not like you. People might reject you. Follow him anyway. Follow me, Jesus said, and be willing to die. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And follow me all the way to heaven. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I want to close with a word to any here who have not trusted in Christ. Many of you perhaps have heard sermon after sermon. Perhaps you didn't understand what the Christian life was genuinely about. Jesus says, if you've never trusted Him, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Do you see the text? Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. But you know something? Jesus has life-giving power. He can speak and Lazarus comes alive. Come to Christ today. If you're concerned about your soul, if you don't know whether you've really trusted in Christ, come and talk to me during the invitation hymn, during the closing hymn. Come and talk to me and let's be certain that you're following Christ. To the rest of you, I want to say, what are you expecting? when you follow Jesus. Will you follow Him anywhere, even if foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay His head. Will you follow Jesus? Close with me now in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians